the show you're about to hear discusses films, books, and TV shows in their entirety. Twists, endings, and all. Without fear of spoilers. So if you don't want to know who dies, who done it, or how it all ends, we strongly advise you switch off now. Hello, I'm Paul Tyler, and welcome to Spoiler, the show which reviews movies, books, and TV shows in their entirety. This week, we're reading Kazu Ishiguro's 2015 fantasy novel, The Buried Giant. And, just another final warning, we will be talking about the whole of the plot. We will ruin it for you. So if you've not already read The Buried Giant, go away and read it now, then come back to us afterwards. Have they gone? Right. On with the show. There's a journey we must go on, and no more delay. And that fantasy journey is taken by Axel and Beatrice, an elderly Briton couple in search of their long-lost son, in confusingly misty times, following a war between Britons and the Saxons. King Arthur is no longer, and lands are roamed by knights, ogres and pixies that naturally leave village folk wary of strangers, even a seemingly innocuous elderly couple. There is also talk of a she-dragon living in the hills. Querig, the she-dragon? I've not heard talk of her in a long time. Is she still feared in this country? Written by Nobel Prize-winning author Kazuo Ishiguro, The Buried Giant was a work ten years in the making, following his wife's advice to start from scratch after she'd read an early draft of the book. She said, um, actually, no, this will not do. It just will not do. You have to just start you know, from square one again, you know. Uh, and I'd been working on it for, a, for about a year and a half at this point. Uh, so this is a kind of depressing piece of news. Inspired by Sir Gawain and the Green Knight, a late 14th century Middle English chivalric romance, which I'm sure you don't need me to tell you, is a literary genre of high culture and a type of prose and verse narrative that was popular in aristocratic circles of high medieval and early modern Europe. This poem left Ishiguro believing that this barren, weird England with no civilization could be quite interesting. With little known about this period, gaps in history can be convincingly filled by a writer of his pedigree. Critically, The Buried Giant received mixed reviews. Writing for The New Yorker, James Wood states that in his previous novel, Never Let Me Go, he seemed fiercely, relentlessly committed to the elaboration and prosecution of the theme of our collusion with our own lack of freedom. He seems only half-hearted here. The Guardian, however, were all about it. Alex Preston claims that the buried giant is a game of thrones with a conscience, the sword in the stone for the age of the trauma industry, a beautiful, heartbreaking book, and the duty to remember and the urge to forget. So will our spoiler team have enjoyed this mystical, historical journey, or will they wish his wife had set fire to the manuscript instead? We can make all those memories come back, princess. Besides, the feeling in my heart for you will be there just the same, no matter what I remember or forget. Don't you feel the same, princess? I do, Axel. And later in the show, we'll be taking a look at Ishiguro's lesser-known forays into the world of jazz. And you can hazard a guess as to which of the team has written that particular feature. But first... Joining me to uncover the buried giant with a digger, a dumper truck, a rope and a pulley system, a couple of microphones and a Radio Academy Award-nominated producer, it's Andy Goulding and Rachel Bennett. Hello! Hello! But before we get to what we all made of this book, we have temporarily lost our minds and let a listener choose something for us. (laughs) 
a format I am dead against, but the rest of the team do occasionally get their way. So let's hear from the person that got us into this mist. Jill Hart is a bookseller from Linden Books in Lincoln and our old friend from the Reading Room podcast. So I asked Jill what on earth she was thinking getting us to read The Buried Giant. So I chose The Buried Giants for a number of reasons. One of them being that everything told me that Paul wasn't going to like this. Um, I've known his reading taste before and I knew we weren't going to be having success there, but I think it's a great book. I've read Ishiguru a number of times. There's um, The Remains of the Day, the one that's best known. There's lots of his books that have, have been really successful, but this one I think is really special and the one that'll stand the test of time. The themes of fairy tale and quest, I think, are magically done. I think it's the, the sort of sense of magic realism of this fairy tale world that's also a real Saxon England. It's just a magical setting. And particularly the theme of memory, I thought, was very moving. Um, it's We're talking about these two elderly people who are forgetting. And that whole thing about everybody has things about forgetting whether or not it's dementia, whether or not it's seriously forgetting. Memory and how we use memory is so crucial to how we live and this whole theme through the book about loss of memory and if it's a good, bad thing, a good thing, I absolutely loved it. And then when we got to the Arthurian stuff with uh, Gawain and all these wonderful characters that I've known before, I, I loved it. It had scary bits, it had emotional bits, it had touching bits. I think it had got everything going for it and that's why I think it would be a really great book for spoiler. So thanks to Jill for that. Now, obviously, uh, Jill did it. There's still some spite there coming back from the old reading room podcast, <laughs> um, getting at me in particular. Um, so um, she didn't think I'd like this. And we'll find out about that in, 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 in to come. <laughs> um, alphabetically, Andy. um this is a rotten book right well i had no idea at all what this book was about i I bought my copy uh and the cover didn't didn't give much away it's a picture of a tree i had nothing to go on i deliberately kept it that way i wanted to come to this completely fresh no idea about it at all the only thing i had to go on was the name ishiguro and all i really knew about him apart from his reputation as one of the great modern writers was that he wrote Remains of the Day, which was then made into a boring film with Anthony Hopkins. Um, so I was expecting something here that was quite profound, weighty and challenging. And I did get that, but not quite in the package that I was imagining. So the book begins with these passages about the lay of the land in ancient Britain. And I thought, OK, this is this is fairly consistent with my expectations. But before I even got to the end of the first page, it mentions ogres. And I was like, right, this has taken me completely by surprise. (laughs) And I wasn't sure how I felt about it. Because on the one hand, it was something unexpected and it came out of the left field and it really piqued my interest. But on the other hand, it triggered my scepticism about sort of epic fantasy things. And I've never been really a big fan of like this sort of style of epic fantasy that's very solemn and elaborate. I, I do like some fantasy things, but it's usually sort of quite comedic things like Labyrinth, we're talking about earlier in the series. Uh, so things like Lord of the Rings and Game of Thrones, I've not had that much interest in. I understand the appeal and I love how enthusiastic people are about them, uh, but they're generally not for me. And so a part of me feared at the mention of ogres that that was kind of where we were now headed. And once again, I proved to myself what a dangerous and stupid thing preconceptions are. Because <laughs> I took to this book very quickly and I really enjoyed it. 
And the key to to it for me was that I don't think it's really a fantasy novel so much as a novel that uses some of the conventions of fantasy as a backdrop for these greater themes of collective memory. And even though there's ogres and dragons and like armies of aggressive soldiers and, and things like that, the real sense of peril in it for me comes from within the characters and this looming sense of their forgotten pasts. And so I found it to be really subtly philosophical stuff that just sort of slips its themes into your head almost unnoticed by way of these heroic tales of yore. And ultimately, that's more satisfying to me than a really dense meditation on a subject in which the point's constantly visible and the author kind of hands to you what they want you to think. So I felt here, respect as a reader, and just given sort of the materials to consider it from all different angles myself. Right, so Rachel, you're going to see sense, aren't you? Um, <laughs> I mean, this, it, was it fantastical enough? It's strange, actually, because I did have preconceptions. Um, I came, to, came at it in a completely different way to you, Andy. Um, I had read Never Let Me Go, Remains of the Day, The Unconsoled. Um, so I'd read three of his. Yeah. Um, so I kind of knew his style. And um, and I knew that the buried giant was Arthurian. I knew that it had Arthur and knights. Yeah. And, and I thought, right, that's really weird. How is he going to do that? <laughs> But I was, I'm also a big fantasy fan. Um, I do like my fantasy novels and I like a a lot of fantasy in them. (laughs) You know, I like to really lose myself in fantasy. And with this book, you absolutely can't lose yourself in it. Mm, Not in the fantasy element of it anyway. So when I started it with my, how is he going to do this? And he kind of did it the only way that he could, because that's the type of writer he is. He's not a fantasy writer. But for me, as a fantasy fan, I wanted a lot more of the fantasy elements of it. I loved Quereg being in it, and I have quite a deep knowledge of Arthur and the myths and stuff. And so I wanted more of that. I said, oh, could could we just draw that bit out? But I knew it wasn't really about that. It was about the collective memory and about the the married couple and about what love is and what marriage is. And so there's so much more to it. One interesting thing that you said, though, and I'm sorry, Paul, I'm not trying to take over your role as host. No, 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 no. no. (laughs) Believe me, you're questions are much more pertinent than mine. <laughs> um, well, just before we started recording, you said that you've reread this. So yeah. did you find it a different experience reading it the second time when you, you knew what was coming? Yeah, I, it was different. What I expected, though, was that I would be able to read it quicker yeah. because I knew the central themes. But actually what happened was I wanted to read it even slower because the first time I read it and I thought, right, that was really strange. I don't know how I feel about it. Second time, I thought, I've got to read this fast because I left it really late just to read it again because I thought I could skim read it. And you can't when it's Ishiguro and I totally forgot that. <laughs> so is that a good thing or a bad thing that you read it slow the second time? Then? I don't know. I'd like, I'd like it to have sunk in more and it mm. clearly hadn't. And even now, sat here, there are still bits that haven't... It's almost like the mist itself. I can't <laughs> honestly remember all of it. Yeah. Whereas, you know, I've just read The Air Affair by Jasper Ford. I could tell you every every page of it. But this one, it sort of goes in my head and I think about it and themes linger, but the plot kind of just slips back out my, my ears again, which is just like the plot itself. <laughs> but it doesn't stick with me. Yeah. Just the central themes, which is probably his point. Yeah, it's it's a strange reading experience. It's not an easy experience. Quite right. <laughs> Quite right. Um, so, as we know, I, I cover the audiobook angle uh, on, on this programme, not really through any high production, just the fact that I can't be bothered to read. <laughs> and uh, I think we look back on all the audiobooks we've done. Um, 
you know, stuff I've not been looking forward to, to, to putting on. <laughs> uh, and, but then that, the last one we did was Wonder, wasn't it? And I was, you know, yeah. and I, I put, that, put that off and put it off and put it off. This one, actually, I attacked quite early on from, from when we said we were, we were going to do it. But it's funny, I was looking at my... Um, we can say Audible, can't we? I mean, it's, it's about the only way you can get an audio book, isn't it? So I subscribe to Audible. Other ones are available, but, you know, do, do you see you're a smart enough listener to understand that. My Audible history goes something like Danny Baker, John Ronson, Catelyn Moran, Izzy Sooty, Johnny Marr. What do you reckon I made of this historical fantasy <laughs> f- fiction? Well, I think that, that as a list, that is a, a list of people who you could legitimately call geniuses in their field. So there's no reason why going to a, a literary sense that you should feel any differently. To, to me, that shows uh, an intelligence it, just because it's more popular. Thank you very much. And no, just leave it there. <laughs> <laughs> and so here's, 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 here's the thing, Big, uh, you know. I was absolutely determined. I think that well, I can't remember the name of the thing I didn't finish. I mean, I know I didn't finish Ro- uh, Romeo and Juliet, but no. I think you, you that you if you wanted to to get my passwords out of me and torture me, you could put that film on. <laughs> um, so I would. I think I have a, a difficult relationship with this, and uh, let's let's tell the story, which I must have done on this podcast before. But hey, new listeners, <laughs> we're here for you too. Um, so Bill Drummond's uh, book, uh, which is called Forty Five, I tried to read when I was in my late twenties. Didn't make a word of sense to me. I put it back on the shelf, uh, and then I picked it up in my mid to late thirties, uh, and it started to resonate with me just because of you know obviously it was I'm, I'm getting towards the age of when it was written, and I'm the same with. Well, I'm not the same with whiskey because I've still not got that because I'm still sick through my nose with it. But I understand, <laughs> I understand that as you mature, and I think you two matured a lot quicker than I have, um, then you can look for deeper things in things. I, for someone from The Guardian to describe this as the new Lord of, not Lord of the Rings, what did he say? He said, um, what's the one with the dragons and the naked people? Oh, Game, Game of Thrones. Thrones. <laughs> Game of Thrones, right? He said, it's, he said, oh, it's just like Game of Thrones. It's nothing like Game no, of Thrones. No, it isn't like he's, Game of Thrones. He would, he, but that's lazy journalism, I don't, I don't even think he read the book. I even think he's looked at the cover of that book. That's seeing fantasy and going for the, the current popular fantasy yeah. reference. Exactly. It's got exactly. nothing, must have nothing of those tropes at all. It is know. not that type of novel. Um, but obviously, that, you know, that's... that's. I don't know if that... That, that wouldn't have sold it to me anyway, because <laughs> I've not read those books either. I've watched the telly because I'm lazy. So... <sighs> There's stuff in here, isn't there? But it's just there's, there's so much in this that annoyed the living <laughs> out of me that I just, uh, at the minute, I can't dig through it. And I think, I, I think I'm think i not going to make a commitment to it, but I think I might come back to this in a few years' time. I think when I'm ageing, it's going it's to start to resolute with me more. Perhaps when I've been married longer as well, <laughs> it might resolute with me more about, you know, looking at that relationship and putting some of the, the things in the past behind you that you've forgotten. It's a lot about memory. Yeah. Losing your memory. I, I saw it more of a, it's the word I'm looking for, allegory, where yes. yeah. uh, it resembles, you know, sort of losing your memory and, and forgetting things. And I, I have, I've got those things swimming around my mind at the minute about uh, the stories that you make up about what happened when you were seven, because you don't believe, you don't, you don't remember what happened when mm. you were seven, but you remember things about it and you've seen photographs and things like that. Uh, and a lot of it was very brown in the 70s, wasn't it? <laughs> um, but uh, I did, I liked the characters. I liked, the, you know, there, there's enough in here for me to like it. But there's so much that's just so irritating. They didn't get on this journey for ages. They just spent a lot of time squabbling about, oh, should we go on this journey? Oh, I don't know. I don't know about that. <laughs> Um, well, they're from that, that type of place, are they? Yeah. Or oh, did they talk like that in the well, audio No, 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 um, no, the, no, the audio book. I mean, let, let's talk quickly about David Horowitz. So David Horowitz is skilled, but I'm wondering if somewhere along the line, in, in listening to a one-character audio book with, other, with different, lots of different characters in, do you 
I know they're providing the voice for you, aren't they? Mm. Whereas you two are getting it, and you're getting your own voices in your mm. head. Yeah. Um, and that's that's actually actually after all this stuff I've li- I've listened to, I've only just thought about that. Just just you know, <laughs> I think, oh right, okay, yeah. So he's providing those, but he's very skilled. He's very very skilled, and it's a really good reading, very talented reading, very, and he does. All the voices, so you would you would recognise that they came from that sort of age and they're that kind of sex or this that and the other. Um, so that's good, but they the fight scenes are just I I mean I only, I honestly think some of the fight scenes are poorly written, and I know I know yeah come from me right I know <laughs> you've heard the introduction to this program I wrote that introduction right and that's coming from me right saying that something was poorly written but there were times when I just sort of had to go back on things and say. Well, I don't really understand what's happened there. Did he have that sword? Where's the sword gone? Where's he? It's like it's, it's leaving too much to, for me to do. Just tell me what's happening. Where's he stabbing him? What's going on? You know, I mean, the, the, the narration's not looking the other way. Get on with it. And all the tedious stuff before it all well said. I mean, he's about to kill him, isn't he? The guy's about to kill him. No doubt about it. Everyone knows it. I don't know. He's all this formal stuff. Right? And a little bit of that. I thought, oh, that's quite nice. That's honourable. That's very nice. Yeah. Oh, get on with it. <laughs> Just get on with it. What the... Oh, man. Can I ask, did you... That quote from The Guardian about being the new Game of Thrones, did you read that before you started reading it? No, no, no. I read, uh, that, I read that. So you it. didn't go in with expectations no. like Rachel did about it, the fantasy genre? No, no. I, I, knew, I, I knew nothing about it other than... Who? who, who but it's Jill, wasn't it? Jill, Jill they can't blame anyone around the table. No one around the table I can blame for this. Jill. This is why we don't let listeners do it. Anyway, right. I liked so, it, Jill. <laughs> you and me. Um, <laughs> I quite liked it. So no, it's, it's not a simple. It's not a simple for me to say. I, you know, that I, I didn't because there are things in there I, I understand, but I just wanted him to get on with it. I don't know. Let's wait. Let's wait and get to Querig because it happens. I suppose much more, more, more late in the book. So let's 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 talk. I suppose characters. Or should we talk... Oh, I don't know where to go. <laughs> let's talk... So let's, I, got, I, got I think kind of, characters is a good idea. Yeah, yeah. Because Axel and Beatrice are your sort of... Your path through the book. Yes. Yeah. And through the story. And I've heard mixed um, things about Axel and Beatrice. Like some people find them incredibly irritating. I must admit, I could have done without Axel saying princess at the end of every <laughs> single line. Mm. Um, Oversold a little bit, wasn't it? Just a little bit. It's like... But then... I then Because then, when you're reading something like this that you know has got a lot of depth to it... I found myself probably overanalyzing everything <laughs> to the point of like, right, just stop now because you're overanalyzing every single word. So he's saying princess to, to sort of reaffirm to himself that that's the relationship mm, they yeah. have. So he has to keep saying it and keep reaffirming. No, no, you are the princess, aren't you? You are. And she keeps calling him husband to remind herself that that's what he mm. is. So if you're living in a, in a land where there is very little memory and, the ch- and you feel in this fog all the time, you probably will talk differently. But their way of speaking was really odd. But it was very much sort of of that Arthurian kind of time. And that it did feel mythological. It didn't feel like we were in reality. This was a fairy tale kind of thing. Mm. I think it does feel like a fairy tale because the dialogue is so stilted. It, it's, you don't speak like that in real life. And I don't think even ancient Britons probably spoke like that. So it's just this mythological way of speaking that's very clear and very, very poetic but also has a lot behind it. Yeah, so, that's the thing. I felt that he, he did bring out that kind of tenderness in a realistic way. You know mm. these. You know when you, you watch a film and someone says, oh, I love you until the stars fall from the sky, and you yeah. think, yeah, I'll, I'll give that about a week. <laughs> yeah. Whereas yeah. In, the, in this, it was like, I felt there was a lot in there, and mm. there was, so like, in that sort of repetition of him calling the princess, it felt like kind of their thing. Mm. And I felt that there was a lot of, 
kind of tenderness between them. I also mm-hmm. felt that he he managed to keep it ambiguous enough that there is this tension. So when at the end one of them goes off to the island and the other one stays behind, you think, well, are they being separated here mm-hmm. or are they not? Oh yeah. And he, he he doesn't he doesn't push you too far either way so he, he did it enough that I felt that there was a real sort of warm connection between them there and I wanted them to stay together Yeah, but there was enough ambiguity that I I wasn't certain it was going to happen mm. and so it made it quite compelling for me I mean the the scariest part of it for me was that that moment where Beatrice suddenly feels she has this memory that he was once unfaithful mm. and she's like sort of in this half asleep dream state and she says I don't think I want you near me anymore and he goes through this night of feeling that and then she wakes up and she's forgotten this and mm. it passes and I felt that same kind of relief and I think that, that that sort of ambiguity is so key in it. It's like, it, it makes you ask questions like, was he unfaithful? And if he was, and he can't remember that, and they've built sort of a new relationship since then where mm. they've forgotten everything, does that still have the same moral implications as if he remembered it all? Mm. Yeah, it is. it does make you feel very unstable yeah. um, in the way that it depicts things. And you do find yourself wanting to stay in the, in the, in the fog, and isn't that how we protect ourselves a yeah, lot, all yeah, of us anyway? Yeah. Is by misremembering or actively forgetting something or just trying to cloud it a little bit. And if, if you've been given this physical form of, you know, of forgetting, you can just go, oh, I can't quite remember, but I love you now. Yeah. And they're so strong how they are right now that you think, I don't want anything to get ruined by what happened before because actually where you are now is what counts. Yeah. It's, like, it's almost, oh, see, this is it. I'm reading far too much into it. But it's a whole living in the now, isn't it? And not being too affected by the past or the, yeah. or the future, but, but living the now. Then there's these greater questions and the, probably the most difficult question it asks is, is a state of peace still a good thing if it hangs upon the enforced amnesia mm. of people who have been wronged yeah. in the past? That's such a major, it's a ma- major yeah. question. And so I suppose the thing between Axel and Beatrice is it's like a scaled down version yeah, of that. Absolutely. Where you can think about it on a personal turn. And then as we realise that that's the case at the end of the novel, it mm-hmm. becomes this great. And somehow, even though you've had it in sort of microcosm, it blows your mind trying to trying to think, mm-hmm. would, do I want to retain peace if it means that all these people have had their family slaughtered and everything? Yeah are just going to accept we've got peace and that's we'll just forget about that. Mm, yeah, it's a massive question. It is. I, 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 I get that. I understand it all. But I also think living under that mist... But it's not really misty, is it? In my mind, it well, wasn't it is, mist. It's, it's dragon's yeah. breath, yeah, yeah, isn't yeah. it? So it is a physical something because um, it's dragon's breath. Yeah. Um, so I, I always had the idea that it was very slightly muggy. <laughs> 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 you know, like there's yeah. just a bit of something in the air. You couldn't see very far. Mm. Um, I, I felt... Sometimes when I'm watching a film, so if we take Lord of the Rings, probably most people have seen Lord of the Rings, and sometimes you, uh, they split it, don't they? But I think the same happens quite a lot in Star Wars, and well, probably lots and lots of films, but certainly in my mind, these two are very clear where you have a lot of action happening somewhere, mm. and then it cuts off to uh, Frodo and Sam, say, for example. Yeah. And I sometimes get annoyed by that, because you think, oh yeah, you get into a nice bit of action there, and then it cuts off to Frodo and Sam. Now, in my mind, I was quite relieved at times when when Whiston was along. I felt kind of safe, safer around him, rather than this doddering on couple <laughs> um, about you know because he, he knew what he was doing so when we talk about um, the time he went to well what is now a monastery but he could see through of, of what it was before and what he was describing uh, the way that this place had been attacked before and the way it had been defended before and it was really quite horrific and quite insightful mm. but really 
you think, oh, right, okay, he's very, this is a very, very wise man, you know. It's a, I felt, I felt comfortable around him, and but still, I mean, with, as with everyone, because of this mist, the mist comes over you, the listener, reader, uh, about it as well, and and it slowly dripped, sort of his mm. his, his his history in there, yeah. Yeah. Um, uh, but that 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 for me that was a revelation that was probably probably my favorite point of the book and then talking about why he'd been chopping up so much wood etc like that and mm. you know sort of you know he knew his escape plan before he, he got out of there um and, and again you know that escape the escape of, of axel and beatrice going down you know they got there are people coming they go with it to kill him and whatever and they go no after you my no, no, get down the hole get down the hole get out of there what the hell did just move oh i'm not sure now now young man now you must promise me that no sorry i keep coming back to that i know i've made my point i've made my point um, I mean, I'm just, I don't want to read out audible reviews, but I've only just found out that they do that. I mean, I just, oh. I, you know, I don't really like to pay attention to what other people think. Um, <laughs> but I just took, I took the headlines off it, and I'm not going to read them all out or anything. I've got a couple of one just went, hmm. <laughs> uh, another said, couldn't bear to finish, beautiful but slow going. Uh, not my cup of tea. I really like that. Someone's put that as their headline. Not my, not cup, my of tea. cup of tea. Nice. Well done. Uh, but my favourite was, uh, seriously, what am I missing? <laughs> this book made me look forward to getting to work in the morning and switching off the app. <laughs> Still counts to me, though. It's very good. Uh, now then, Kazu Ishiguro is rightly acclaimed as a novelist and screenwriter, but very few people know he also occasionally moonlights as a jazz lyricist. Rachel has been finding out more. Ever since I first heard her at an event in Cambridge, I've been a huge fan of American jazz singer Stacey Kent. Her soft lyrical voice, so unlike many contemporary jazz vocalists, was a revelation and a tonic. You always had a taste for those movies Like Casablanca and Song of My Heart Coupled with her husband Jim Tomlinson's sensitive saxophone playing, I felt like I'd possibly discovered the perfect jazz combo. However, it turned out that they needed just one more addition to the mix to really hit the sublime. Although Kent has recorded a number of jazz standards, especially towards the start of her career, it was her original songs that I really fell in love with. On her 2007 Grammy-nominated album Breakfast on the Morning Tram, Stacey's husband Jim collaborated with a somewhat surprising lyricist and the person who I now consider the essential ingredient, Kazu Ishiguro. You always considered it. Together they created some of my favourite jazz tracks on the album and indeed some of my most played of recent times. I have to confess, I actually fell in love with the songs before I even knew that Ishiguro had written the lyrics, but once discovered, I was surprised I hadn't figured it out before. Having said that, why would you assume that a novelist had written songs for a famous but not too famous jazz singer? In fact, how would they even have met? And how did this happen? Well, sit tight and I'll tell you. The way you wear your head. In 2002, Ishiguro chose Stacey Kent's version of They Can't Take That Away From Me as one of his Desert Island discs. Kent, who had just read Kazuo's The Unconsoled and Remains of the Day, was listening at the time and was so excited that he had picked one of her songs that she wrote him a thank you letter. No, no, they can't take that away from me. Soon after, they started emailing each other. 
The correspondence led to Kent asking Ishiguro to write the liner notes for her album In Love Again and eventually to a lunch meet-up, along with Stacey's husband Jim. It was at that meeting that Jim proposed that he and Kazuo wrote a song for Stacey, and that was how it began. It actually wasn't as crazy a prospect as it may first appear. Ishiguro had previous experience as a singer-songwriter and played guitar and piano. He was also a master of poetic, lyrical writing, so it made sense. The resulting songs of that initial collaboration stand out against the other tracks on the album. They are far more narrative and concerned with the minutiae of daily life and relationships. Where the Great American Songbook often speaks of grand romance and dramatic betrayals, Ishiguro's lyrics are intimate, personal and often feel almost conversational. The titular track on Breakfast on the Morning Tram opens with this. So here you are in the city With a shattered heart it seems Though when you arrived you thought you'd have the holiday of your dreams You'd cry yourself to sleep if you could But you've been awake all night Well here's something you need to do At the first hint of morning light Walk right across the deserted city To the boulevard Amsterdam And wait there For what the citizens here Refer to as the breakfast tram The tram was actually at the end of The Unconsoled and in an article for The Guardian in 2015, Ishiguro explained the reference. You've been up all night, heartbroken, but in the early hours of dawn, you get on this tram and it's full of these commuters who are terribly cheerful and comfort you. And there is a buffet at the end of the tram and it is everything you want, fantastic coffee and everyone chats to you and you stuff yourself with croissants. I wish I could go travelling again other songs on the album, including The Ice Hotel and I Wish I Could Go Travelling Again, have a similar feel of a chat between two people. Kent delivers these songs better than anyone else I can imagine because her style of singing is already conversational. There's no belt, no showing off, no vocal acrobatics. She is a communicator of lyrics, great enunciation, exquisite emotional interpretation, ideal for Ishiguro's beautifully written songs where every word matters. In Kent's 2013 album Changing Lights, Ishiguro exercises his comedic writing chops with a witty song called Waiter, Oh Waiter. And here's one of my favourite sections. Waiter, oh waiter, I feel so embarrassed. If this is really French, it's not the kind they use in Paris. What is this crab and lobster foam? What's in this cassoulet? While my companion's so at home, so terribly au fait. Stacey Kent is a fluent French speaker, and her fans know this as she's released a number of songs in French. In fact, an entire album in 2010, so this makes the song doubly funny. However, on the same album is the achingly melancholic Changing Lights, which describes the memories of past lovers and the hopes they once had compared to the life they now have. So Ishiguro, it really couldn't be anyone else. And only Kent can deliver the lyrics with such honesty and sensitivity. Postcard Lovers on the Dreamer and Concert album really speaks to me. A past love affair which is now reduced to the odd postcard. Just enough to keep in touch, but not enough to really understand who the other has become over the passing years. The postcards I send to you From my own travels Can hardly match the ones You send to me But at least 
list I give you News of what I'm doing And open my heart to you Occasionally Looking back On all the cards you've written From every far-flung corner beneath the sun They say so little Of the life you're really leading So little of the person you've become As a jazz singer myself, I love the Great American Songbook, of course I do. And it does have plenty to say about love, life and the passing of time. But Tomlinson, Kent and Ishiguro speak to me on a far more intimate and personal level. Ishiguro has said of his lyric writing that, with an intimate, confiding, first-person song, the meaning must not be self-sufficient on the page. It has to be oblique. Sometimes you have to read between the lines. And that this realisation has had an enormous influence on his fiction writing. Well, long may the two influence one another. Well, I admit I struggle sometimes to pick up an Ishiguro novel and get myself in the right frame of mind to properly enjoy it. I'm always ready to listen to his lyrics, the achingly lovely melodies of Tomlinson and the gentle tones of Stacey Kent. Bring me a mug of hot chocolate, a warm throw and turn on the music. I have a hankering for the sublime. Well, thanks for that, Rachel. <laughs> and um, I suppose you see here we go like like I was saying earlier about I suppose whiskey you know I'm thinking well that sooner or later that may or may not come to me I mean like jazz opera classical music all these things you know I you know I appreciate these things <laughs> exist I appreciate other people get something out of it I mean, for you know for for one thing heavy metal anything about the Foo Fighters <laughs> I consider he- I, yeah I consider heavy metal but you know you go and see loads of people and they're moshing and banging their heads and stuff head banging how very early eighties um, yeah you know they're doing that but they're having a whale of a time and that's you know I'm, I'm, I'm all about it and I, you know this comes back to what I said earlier about I think you know the, the buried giant will be there for me in the future maybe maybe <laughs> and jazz will too mm. it depends if it's Very, all jazz there isn't just one type like here's jazz well, it doesn't work like that no I know this I think mm, no I'm not going to ask for any recommendations <laughs> right so you won't listen to it no um, <laughs> you touched on the cover earlier Andy yeah it's rock. I mean, come on, we've all got to say it's a rotten cover. Well, I don't rotten. know, there's a few different editions, isn't there? Mine yeah. was sort of like, it had sort of a red tree and like a couple getting in a boat. Yep, Is that the same one? That's the yeah. same one I had, yeah. Yeah, I, don't, I, I, think, I think that's a, a fair cover for, for what it was because I think if you put something like dragons or ogres on the front it's going to set up those fantasy mm. expectations which are going to ruin it for people like so. myself yeah <laughs> yeah because they could have put querig on it yeah but that would have been like oh is it the hobbit querig yeah. is held back as well isn't yeah it? exactly like, yeah, I mean, it's quite anticlimactic possibly on yeah. purpose when you get to querig yeah but yeah paul i'm waving know, my arms about seen... yes <laughs> yes it is excited. i've been waiting now i've been waiting for this it comes very much towards the end of the book but let's just get on halfway through querig yeah i mean it is it's because, all oh right, yeah, it's deeper, it's mystical. <laughs> uh, the effect of Quarry's been flowing all the way through the book. It wasn't really Quarry, was it? It was the... Uh, what's that Merlin guy? Yeah, he would set up. maimed Quarrig, hadn't they, and put yeah, a yeah, spell yeah. on. Yeah. But I suppose uh, he was also only Arthur's puppet, all down to Arthur. Arthur's the real bad guy. They should have put Arthur on there, right? But 
when he finally killed, it was just it was just so disappointing. I was expecting a tussle of fight because yeah, this is the thing, this is the peak. That's the not thing where that's it's been... going, though, is it? That's, if if <sighs> Querig is still able to fight, then that undermines the point. You need Querig to have been made put in this docile state to keep them in in the state, and it sort of reflects the state that they've been kept in. Mm. And it's not that sort of book that builds up to it. And because I think possibly the reason I enjoyed this more is because I'm not a big action guy, and I mm. like a lot of long sort of meditations on like themes and like the emotional side of things and the and so I was quite glad not to have a lot of sort of waving your sword around. And... It wouldn't have suited it, would it? No, no. It wouldn't. I, I totally get why you'd want that, though, Paul. <laughs> totally get that. Because it's that whole fantasy setup thing. Like, as soon as I, as I read that first paragraph and it mentioned ogres, I was like, ooh. Whereas Andy went, oh. I went, ooh. <laughs> but then it kind of didn't but happen. I'm like, where are what? the ogres? Where are the ogres? You know, and so it depends what you want out of it. And what you wanted out of it, it was never going to deliver because it's just not that kind of book. But you say this, that, like you said earlier, there's a lot of different kinds of jazz. Surely there's a lot of different kinds of fantasy yeah, as well. Yeah, there totally is. But and, he, that is quite exceptional, though. And Ishiguro's so, fantasy is exceptional. Yeah. I, there aren't many fantasy that run like that. But there must be a lot of ones that are a bit more slow moving. Oh, they're no, not absolutely. all action fantasy. And they're no, not no, all... no, they're not. So is it is it just the sort of the current trend of fantasy that is ruining this for a lot of people? Um, I don't know. I mean, I think I think the Buried Giant stands alone. I don't think you can compare it with any fantasy that's about. Mm. I've read fantasies that are really gentle. I've read because I don't like a lot of action either. So I like fantasies that's got a lot of magic in it and lots of spell casting and what have you. Less yeah. fighting, less swords, more wands. Um, <laughs> so that's much better for me. And lots of things about love and um, redemption and stuff like that. That's what I like. So so there are more gentle or more meditative fantasies out there, but. Even if you're a massive fan of that kind of fancy, which I kind of am, you would still be surprised by the pacing and the real depth of this book is is exceptional. But that's kind of why he is who he is and yeah. why he gets the plaudits he does. And he will court the you know the people that say it's rubbish, it's too slow, because that's just who he is. And that's that's how he writes. The Unconsoled is, oh, we should so read The Unconsoled. <laughs> that would absolutely do you in. <laughs> Um, it's it's ginormous, <laughs> absolutely ginormous, oh, and God. hardly anything happens. It sounds sounds but like my street. You would love it. <laughs> I mean, how many how many pages was this? Because this was what eleven hours or something like this. I had to, um, uh, I, had to... I whipped through it really quickly. Three hundred something, I'm... I think. Unconsoled is five hundred. So yeah, three hundred. But it's quite yeah. a big print. Yeah, it is. Yeah, it's not. I mean, got some fancy novels. You go, oh, that looks nice and small. <laughs> you open it, and the print size is like eight. <laughs> it's like, wow. There were some, I think, creepy moments. or oh, felt yeah. creepy. Certainly, we'd do it. That business with the boatman and the old lady doing mm. what with whatever she was doing to a rabbit. But then, am yeah, I yeah. right in thinking that the rabbit that was just in their minds because the rabbit was fine in the end, or was the rabbit not fine in the end? However you wanted to. <laughs> was was she a spirit too? Was she some kind of? Because that's another thing that people have fight about online is about the woman and the rabbit it's how much of this is allegory and yeah, how much of it is real i do real. understand the frustration with that when things yeah. are allegorical and you're thinking well what's real and what's yeah. not and it, it can get a bit frustrating yeah. because you want you want some kind of concrete element yeah. to the, the story don't you yeah, and if which, things are cropping up that you're thinking well is that in their mind or is that is just that... probably why Wiston is so appealing to you because yeah. he's the most solid character in it mm -hmm. by quite a way he seems the most stable. If you're going to sort of lynch on somebody, he'd be the one. And I suppose he was unaffected by the mist, wasn't he? Or reasonably unaffected mm. by the mist. You know, he's still gauging all the other people's characters and their behaviours around him towards the mist, but still 
Yeah, yeah, you, you, you're right. I think without him, I think I mean, at that point, that was very much a point for me with the lady and the rabbit and thinking, oh, God, how uh, you start looking at how many hours can you, you know, these, these apps are really handy, aren't they? They tell you how many hours you've got left. And you look at it, you think, oh, there's about nine hours left here. <laughs> oh. Okay, right, we'll say, oh, there's Whiston. Oh, yeah, yes. good, good to see you again. Yep. Did the kind of the, the mystery of the dragon's breath and everything, that did that keep you going at all because I, I found that quite a compelling thing I knew there was some secrets to be revealed here and I knew because of the type of writing like normally reading something like this where you know people have like forgotten things from the past and stuff you're looking out for little tricks so like the bit where they uh, where Whiston kills that soldier if it was like a lot of other writers I would have thought oh well I bet he'll turn out to be their son mm. uh, but because of the, the style of writing here and because to me, it, it read beautifully and it, it felt like good writing. I had a lot of faith that you wouldn't play these kind of cheap tricks mm. on the reader. So I settled into it more than I would have done something that was less well written because I would have been coming up with all these ridiculous theories of of what was going to be revealed to be significant. Mm. And of course, you do get some small reveals, but they're just another piece of the puzzle rather than the big kind of boom, there's your yeah. big ending. Yeah, there's n- there isn't, as you say, as you so beautifully put it, boom. There's no boom moment <laughs> in it, is there? It, it's very much, everything's just like, oh, oh, like the, finding out about the sun mm. and things like being dead it's like oh oh okay let's move on <laughs> so here you we know. go so here we go sorry to interrupt rachel but I, I, I really must have. but, <laughs> but by, uh, here's, here's some things i want to, i want to know maybe if I, i'm not going to set up anything quick fire but you know let's, let's keep it to that you know the bit at the end of qi yeah where they, keep, they try to keep it short but they still go on for ages yeah. so just feel free to flow but the sun did you guess that he was i was like a murder mystery did, did you guess that he was going to be did, in your mind did you think he was going to be dead oh uh, yeah I okay. kind of did. I thought they blocked it. I, I, I wasn't really trying to guess these things because I, I thought I'm just going to enjoy the, the style because I don't think it's the sort of book that's asking us to guess these things. Mm. Okay, so how about Sir Gawain then? I, all right, I understand you're not guessing. Uh, <laughs> but uh, did you, were you, here we go, better way of putting this, were you surprised when he revealed that he was Querig's protector? Protector. Yeah, I was surprised by that, yeah. But I liked the way it was done. I felt that it wasn't, like presented like a sort of da-da. <laughs> there yeah. you go. It was just an, again. It was another piece of the puzzle. It was, it was a nice sort of twist. But it wasn't. You know when people go, oh, watch this or, or read this. It's got a big twist at the end. It wasn't that. It was just. It, it just kind of drove the pop forward and went. All oh, right. So that mm. that makes sense yeah. now. And it recast what had gone before mm. in my mind as something different. Yeah, you're right. You're absolutely right. Uh, you're absolutely right. I mean. I, what about those chapters, though, towards the end where you're starting to lose it a bit? <laughs> that started to annoy You me. started to lose it, or...? <laughs> yeah. I, I must admit, I got a bit frustrated with the changing of narrative voice. Mm. Uh, I know he only does it a couple of times. There's a couple of the Sir Garwin bits, which that was all right, but I didn't like the way then the final chapter was done from the point of view of the boatman. Mm. I would have preferred that not to be the case. I would have preferred just to continue with the narrative voice that we had and not bring in like that last minute change mm. of perspective. Yeah, I never liked that. I think I like, like say in Wonder, for example, where the chapters change and it's very clear. And yeah. You have like this, it's this person's story now and it's this person's story now and you get this perspective. But to just change it with almost willy nilly, it, it didn't seem to affect an awful lot for me. No. I was like, well, why do it? You know, I'm already on unstable ground with mm. this. 
don't make it more unstable by changing the narration because I don't get what's happening. And why do you think he did do that? Because there didn't seem to be know. any reason to have no. it from the boatman's perspective. Well, I really couldn't if, figure that. If he'd have had it from Axel's perspective or Beatrice, or I suppose from the third person, yeah, yeah. Um, it might have been... It, because I, I, I mean, for me, and this won't surprise you, the ending was the best part, but not for, not for that <laughs> reason. Yeah. Not for that reason, just because it was just the way it happened, the yeah. way it unfurled, the way actually, yes, I agree with some people in their reviews when they said, um, you know, this left me thinking about this for a few days. Mm. And it did. Mm. It really did. And you think, well, all right, what happened there then? Did he die? Did the, the boatman some kind of um, satanic thing just you know is, that, is, is, is this um, going to be the buried giant part two where you know you find you know, some long lost warrior from uh, the Vikings comes and <laughs> comes and attacks boatmen because they've been setting some kind of mist over people and obviously you know I've got time on my hands but I, I, I liked it because then it was it come from a completely different point of view and you had the, his voice and it, it made I think it made it a bit more sinister which I think was probably mm. something I was after I, I felt I that having it from his point of view almost robbed it of that kind of sinister edge mm. because he didn't unless he was withholding withholding something from what he was telling us but mm. he was telling his story in what seemed like quite a sincere way yeah. whereas if we'd seen it just from the point of view of the omniscient narrator there would have been a lot more kind of ambiguity in in mm. the things he was saying to rather than saying he was describing how he felt in the moment and everything wasn't he but that, well, maybe that but was that it then. Here's the thing, though. But that third-person narrator would have probably been more inclined to talk about because he'd been on Axel's side, perhaps, but for narrated most of the book. Yeah. Mm. Um, it would have it been odd if then he wouldn't have been doing things from Axel's uh, opinion and, and things like that. And I think as as a reader or listener, it was good just to see it, just to see and feel him wander off and go, "Oh, mm. crikey! Oh, hang on a minute! Yeah, yeah I suppose that was going on there. Where's he been walking away? What's going on there? Yeah." What's happening with Beatrice? Was there anything ever wrong with her in the first place? What's going on? You know, where she is she going to start? I don't know, murdering yeah. gerbils or something. <laughs> what, every every time the boatman wants to go somewhere to get some shelter, what? I'm what? not sure though, because it's it's Ax- Axel is the one who's left the most uncertain out of the three characters at the end. Mm. I think so. Yeah. To me, to have had it more from his point of view would have retained that uncertainty more than than if we'd gone to the boatman's perspective. I don't know because there is there is ambiguity even with because it said about him wading. Does he wade into the water or does he wade out of the water? I and I think if it that was bit a few times just because just I, to try I, and figure I, out. I didn't get it. No, and nor again, did I. I right, um, unlike that bit earlier that I thought was bad writing, this was obviously this was very 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 good writing because anything that ever gets me rewinding or rereading yeah, yeah. something. Oh, ooh, hang on a minute. What? No. Is he going ooh. in or out? Mm. And maybe if it been from his from that you know, Axel-centric perspective, then it'd be more obvious. But I've, I'm still not sure if he went in or out. So, um, and I've read it twice. You, you're a bit of a fan of Ishiguro, aren't you? Yeah. Did he feel out of his depth writing in this particular genre to you? Or? No, he didn't really. Because he maintained his voice. Yeah. And I think that was the that was the thing that kept me going. Does he have a consistent voice across the novels? Though, he has or? a very distinctive style. Yeah. Very distinctive. Yeah. If you enjoy this, you really should try some others. Yeah. Well, Probably it's, not it's Remains, Remains of the Day. Is it, is it better on paper? <laughs> it's than much it? better on though. paper. That's how I've imagined it. Yeah. <laughs> it's much better. But um, yeah, I mean, try The Unconsoled. It's, yeah. um, it's Although Tim's, that's the big that's It's the, the big, big one, dude, but it? it's it's Tim's <laughs> favourite book and he doesn't like fiction. I might, so. I might try one of his like sort of earlier ones. Try Nocturnes because that's short oh, that's stories. Short stories, isn't yeah. it? Yeah. Yeah. 
Mm. You do that, Andy. I'll probably get Catelyn Moran's latest. It's <laughs> been on my wish list for quite a while now. I really, I really liked her first one because it could be a work of fiction. We, right, okay. Or get Jasper Ford's The Last Dragon Slayer, which yeah. is fantasy. <laughs> Just make a mental note here. Yeah. Mental note for the team and uh, series eight. Paul choose book. <laughs> it's not really a mental note if you write it down. <laughs> you know, to be a pedant. Yeah. Nice. Yeah, I, mean, no, I, think, I think you'll find this is why I'm a host and you're the contributor. You're here for the brains, I do the heavy lifting. Um, okay, so well, I suppose we, we touched on it there a little bit about sort of what happens, you know, when, when the, after, after, after you've closed the book and you go and do something more interesting. No, um, after you close the book, uh, you start to think, okay, right, what happened, what actually happened there between, uh, the Britons and the Saxons mm. were they were they all were they, they must have been at it again, wasn't they? Yeah, that was yeah. part of War what was coming. Made it a very effective ending for me because yeah. it's it ends on the brink of carnage mm. rather well, than genocide, really. Yeah, and that's the book I want. <laughs> <laughs> the you one want after the buried giant too. <laughs> the revenge. The giant rises. <laughs> no, I actually found that part of it really disturbing. Sort of knowing what was going to come because there is that gap in our in our history which you can fill with anything you like because nobody knows anything. Um, but we do know that an entire people was wiped out and, mm. and it happened on our shores. Mm. And, and it almost doesn't matter how long ago it was. It's that whole mist thing. It's like, how long do we keep remembering them? And it made me think, actually, I actually put down in my notes, how long will we do Remembrance Sunday? It's like you know, this sort of willful forgetting of things. Yeah. It's like, how long do you keep remembering something before it necessarily has to go into some kind of collective forgetfulness yeah. just to keep yourself sane. Because if, if we went remembering every single genocide or every single massacre that's ever happened, even just in this country, you'd have to spend the entire year doing Memorial Days. Yeah. That did sort of make me think, well, how long are we going to keep doing Remembrance Sunday and how long are we going to keep doing various things? And that really fascinates me and also really makes me very sad. That there's so many things that we that we have to a remember and b forget. Well, I always think of that that famous uh, Woody Allen line about comedy being tragedy plus time, and mm. how things that are tragic eventually, when you get so much distance from them, you're far enough away from it that people start to joke about it, and mm. then it becomes like almost something that didn't happen. So yeah. people will crack jokes about like things like the Titanic, despite the fact that like. Yeah. People drowned on it. I've seen kids joke books with that in it and stuff. Mm. And you don't really bat an eyelid because it's become a, it's become so sort of swathed in just history, hasn't it? And you yeah. pulled back so much. But someone cracking a joke about like the Second World War or something like that, someone would still be, we haven't quite got enough distance from mm. that. I mean, there's also. things about the War of the Roses. There's you know, jokes about the Roundheads and, and the Cavaliers and stuff. And people yeah. do make jokes about that. But then you can't ever imagine us making jokes about the Second World War or about... But you can bet you know, 100, well, 200, it? 300 years time. Yeah. Of course they will, because yeah. it's so far away. Yeah. But when does that line get crossed? And should we always remember? And oh. Yeah. And also the scope of things, like yeah. the certain things that are just so, you can't imagine it mm. getting to that point. Yeah. So things like the Holocaust. Oh, God, no. You can't absolutely. imagine that ever becoming no. something that people say that's fair game for yeah. humour. And yet people do about like huge battles. Don't they? People mm. joke about like. 1066 and stuff yeah, like that, and yeah. it's and plenty of people died in that. Yeah. So and you know, well, the Mayans were completely wiped out, you know, genocide, and nobody sort of bats an eyelid about yeah. that. So it's a strange thing, this whole sort of collective memory, this sort of almost like an understanding between everybody that it's okay now, 
we can move on from that or it's not okay now don't talk about that or let's remember this and if you don't remember it then you're evil and then all of a sudden it just sort of just drifts away um on the dragon's breath it's like it's it's a very strange thing in that case then is is querig real in this or is it just Mm. is it just a metaphor for a sort of agreement which Mm. which crumbles when the people who are most wronged yeah start to decide to rise up and think yeah no we we can't be Mm. oppressed anymore i i think there's definite grounds for it to be that they've made a conscious decision yeah. like we're just going to move on from this because otherwise we can't have peace and arthur had said look this is the only way we're going to do it yeah if we have to we're just going to say right let's draw a line but eventually that starts to crack and crumble and everyone goes somebody goes well actually i'm not happy about drawing the line hence when you meet querig it has to be anticlimactic mm. because she can't be this big like beast no. that you have to conquer it's no. more of a, a really sort of tenuous thing that could mm. break any minute. absolutely so, yeah, I mean, all of that from a relatively small book yeah. about ogres and dragons. Yeah. <laughs> and pixies. Don't forget the pixies. Oh, don't forget oh, yeah. the pixies. I didn't like the pixies. No, <laughs> See, I don't like the pixies. They're horrible. See, there were, there were chilling moments in it, weren't yeah. there? Well, like kind of my, my summary of it, which I wrote down, uh, which I was quite happy with as a summary of it because I, I, it took me quite a while to write anything down about this because it was hard to get straight. Mm. But, like, the, the final conclusion I came to it is that Ishiguro's done a good job because... What's not on the page feels even more important than what is, and yet it feels like he's the author of both. Yes, I'd say that's very true. He knows exactly what he's trying to make you think. Yeah. I mean, I get it. I do. I do get it. But, but, <laughs> <laughs> but, but you know, I mean, this, well, this was never going to be for me, was it? No. But here we go. I there you're were, a man of many surprises, Paul. I know, no, no, this is it. There were, there were, there were bits in it. And but I could have had a conversation with you two about that. Mm. You could have read it, <laughs> and I could have I, I could have been on to uh, something like whatever else is in my uh, list at the minute. It's a very long list I've got. So what you're I'm saying get is, one book a month. next time we're going to read it and we're going to tell you about it. It's a new development. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, but look at all that you brought to the table about the boatman. Completely different viewpoint yeah. from me, and yet completely valid and and right. So. Right, I think you'll find. <laughs> <as well>. um, <laughs> <laughs> um, but but no no uh, yeah 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 no but I have I have I I took a lot away from it and yeah I th- I I think the boatmen are frightening characters really really frightening if only for also the fact that they put that Christy Berg song in my yeah. head. <laughs> don't pay the ferryman <laughs> don't even fix it price <laughs> don't pay the ferryman you see I've got the get you to the other side no you see I've got the level as the boatman in the song oh yeah, yeah. Well, which is a totally different song, song. Yeah. well done well done right now then right here we go there's a there's a first here's a first right I'm going to take this away. Right, I'm gonna write. I'm not gonna write a mental note. I'm gonna write a note here, Andy. Right, it says, uh, <laughs> right. Dig out Leveler's cassette. It's good having that one. Find Sony Walkman. <laughs> <laughs> right. Okay. I've got one. I've got one somewhere. It's all been lost in the, the dragon's Ooh, breath of time. Yeah. Mm. <laughs> so oh. you're all gonna collectively forget about Walkmans. <laughs> <laughs> oh no, we will. All right, I, I know. Be an antiques roadshow in I know. Years time. We're not we're not big ones for going off on tangents on this. <laughs> I do remember. I can't find a YouTube clip of Philip Schofield on Going Live, who predicted right predicted MP3 players or phones if we've got them now. He had in his hand a little stick, right, and it was an April Fool's Day joke. And he had his hand a little stick. And he says, "If I talk to this stick, it will play any song." And obviously, someone in the studio is pushing a button, playing. Uh, 
Oh, they say mid eighties, a Bangles Manic Monday, right? Mm. And this is a better song than everyone. I mean, yeah. everyone knows I Prince. Everyone, everyone knows Prince wrote song. it, but it is is you know. I think it's probably a lot of lot of local radio stations. They do play it on Mondays, don't they? It's like, oh, we're better than this. Play it on a Thursday, right? Anyway, he did this, and I can't find this clip of it anyway because oh. it was you know because he was playing this joke. I remember joke, it. And I, I remember like, oh, it. Amazing! I can't believe that's going to happen in the future. And he got me, sucked me in completely, and it did happen on the future. Yes. Yeah. So it, the joke's on you, Schofield. <laughs> and yet everything on tomorrow's world. No, none of it happened, did it? When they were spreading jam on a CD, going, look, you can still play it. Yeah, Yeah, the mist has come over and we'll forget about that. Right. (laughs) Hey, that was good, Paul. Well done. (laughs) Right, so here we go. Um, We all know which way this is going. Right, is The Buried Giant a giant in the world of fiction or a book that should have been buried deep, deep in the ground so that only an old couple that have lost their memories can find it and take a very long time to decide whether they're going to go about it, be very, very courteous <laughs> to people on the way unnecessarily, and then can't remember where they put it in the first place. Well, I can't imagine which one you're going for. Yeah. Well, I, I don't think it's a, it's a giant, but I think it's a... I, I really enjoyed it. I didn't absolutely fall in love with it, but no. I, I thought it, was, it had a lot going for it and a lot to think about. That's enough though, right? Yeah. I think it's a, I think it's a docile dragon. That's what I think. It's just, I mean, the choices I've laid out before you. I mean, you're writing your own script now. Sorry. <laughs> in which case, in which case, I'm going to say it's a pixie, a mischievous little pixie. No, I don't like them. <laughs> They're all over. They're all over that woman. I know. There's too many. That was oh, my problem. <laughs> so, all that remains is to thank you for listening. Thanks uh, for your contributions. And thank you, Paul. Hey, that's nice. nice. You did it again. I've got seven series in. Now I look really ungrateful. Uh, Thanks to Rachel. Thanks to Johnny behind the glass. Thank you very, very much for listening. I was thinking about thanking Jill for the suggestion. Go on. Thanks, Jill. Yeah, thank you, Jill. And over to Andy now for the poem. King Arthur was full of good cheer at his staff appraisals for the year because Sir Galahad had not been at all bad and neither had Sir Bedivere. Sir Garwin, Sir Kay and Sir Ector had impressed the external inspector, while Elian the White had worked late every night, a credit to the public sector. Sir Lancelot truly had been an invaluable aid to the Queen, who always felt calmer when big men in armour were prominently on the scene. And as for the good wizard Merlin, whose work was particularly sterling, and whose every last spell had been realised so well, he was praised till his toes started curling. King Arthur exclaimed, I believe you have plenty more tricks up your sleeve. But Alakazam, so have I, my good man. An extra two days annual leave. You've been listening to Spoiler, hosted by me, Paul Tyler, with Andy Golden and Rachel Bennett. Our theme music was composed by Ron Butcher. If you've enjoyed the show, please do tell your friends about us. Share links to our show or write us a nice review on iTunes. Spoiler, we're watching Steven Spielberg's 2008 movie sequel, Indiana Jones and the Kingdom of the Crystal Skull. You know, for an old man, you ain't bad in a fight. Thanks a lot. What, are you like 80? 
If you'd like to contact us, you can email hello at spoilerpodcast.co.uk. Find us on Twitter or Facebook or go to our website, spoilerpodcast.co.uk. Spoiler is produced by Johnny Hoare and is a Joe Schmo production. The show was recorded at the studios of Siren Radio in the heart of the beautiful cathedral city of Lincoln.